the idea to use blockchain was that we wanted to have completely decentralized ownership of the platform and of the constellation. So can you think about launching space hardware into orbit and then having it be managed and used by a community? That's really the dream and the vision that we had with Blocksat. Hello, space enthusiasts. You're now listening to Space Forward Podcast. I'm Hussein Bukhari, your host. With me are Matthias Frenzel and Benjamin Shapiro. In this episode, we're going to talk about MIT's cislunar knowledge graph called the Lunar Open Architecture and the intriguing crowdsourced shared economy-like tokenized satellite constellation named BlockSat. A SAT constellation as public utility for citizen science group to use. The MIT's Media Lab Space Exploration Initiative has the goal to invent, create, and deploy ideas that seem exotic and impossible today, but could be a commonplace in 10 years. Our guest today is a research lead of MIT's Lunar Open Architecture Project, Mehak Sarang. Mehak is a trained physicist and a research associate both at Harvard Business School and MIT's Media Lab Space Exploration Initiative, an active member of the Open Lunar Foundation, Moon Dialogues, and the Space Generation Advisory Council. Our guest today is a research lead of MIT's Lunar Open Architecture Project, Mehak Sarang. Mehak is a trained physicist and a research associate both at Harvard Business School and MIT's Media Lab Space Exploration Initiative an active member of the Open Lunar Foundation, Moon Dialogues, and the Space Generation Advisory Council. Well, it is fantastic to have you with us. You are a trained physicist, contributed to a wide range of research. You're working with Matthew at Harvard Business School on the business and economics of space sector. Recently co-authored a quite a few things uh, from Harvard Business Review and Business School Case Studies on Space. Uh, you are contributing to the IAF, a member of the Open Lunar Foundation and Moon Dialogues, project lead for MIT Lunar Exploration. And I can go on and on and on. And <laughs> you're running a private travel blog. It seems like... <laughs> so, what drove, so here's the question. What drove you to study physics and become such an active member of the of the space research. Well, community. thanks. Yeah, when you say it all like that, it does sound like quite a bit. Um, I promise it all exists in one orbit, so it's quite linked. And yeah, I think it's an interesting story. When I got so I attended Wellesley College as an undergraduate, um, which is a school that's based outside of Boston. It's really known for um, its strong global politics and international relations programs. You know, two of the former. Um, Secretaries of State came from Wellesley, and a main motivation for why I wanted to attend was my interest in international relations. But when I went in, I had the great fortune to take a class um, in the astronomy department, and we have a beautiful observatory um, that is actually the site of the first physics lab in the United States, because it was started by one of the first women who started attending classes as an undergraduate at MIT to then go back to Wellesley College and teach physics um, to women when MIT didn't, didn't uh, allow women to attend. 
So it has a really, really strong astronomy and physics program. And when I took my first astronomy class, I was also reading a wonderful book, um, The Fabric of the Cosmos by, by, by Brian Greene, which is this kind of public science uh, you know, version of string theory. And those kinds of things together, they really drew me to the physics department, um, which was a very, very small department at Wellesley, but has a wonderful and fantastic network of alumni, including astronaut Pamela Melroy, who is now being considered nominated for the deputy administration of NASA position. I had the chance to meet her personally many times when I was an undergraduate um, at Wellesley, which was a crazy experience, especially for somebody who, you know, was entirely new to the space industry, to the space field. So having that experience um, of just seeing what it was like to graduate with a degree in physics and then move into the space industry, knowing that was a realistic path that was a really, really great experience. Um, so as an undergraduate, I also had the opportunity to do research at MIT as a cross-registered student with a professor who is studying and developing a commercial space technology roadmap for NASA. So that was really trying to blend together my interests in space policy. Um, I had just spent the summer doing um, an internship with the National Science Foundation in their international office, learning about space funding and you know how people get grant money for doing basic science research and moving into this new area of research which was really thinking about how NASA creates strategic investments to enable the emergence of a commercial space sector that gave me this great outlook into um, really blending together technology and engineering in addition to this policy work so for my uh, post-grad. When I graduated, I was awarded a travel fellowship, um, the Susan Rappaport Knopfel Traveling Fellowship from Wellesley College. And that allowed me to spend a year studying anything that I wanted around the world, um, as long as I didn't stay in any country for longer than two months. So, of course, I chose to study space um, and space policy and space programs around the world. I started off in Oxford, UK, um, at the European Space Agency's Business Incubation Center with a small startup um, called Open Cosmos. They've since now this year launched their uh, first satellite and are not so small anymore. But when I joined, it was a really great bustling team of entrepreneurs, Spanish entrepreneurs. It was a great experience. Um, and I really credit that for getting my, for, yeah, really introducing me into this really vibrant industry of these small space startups that were happening all over the world. Um, and then, just having the great misfortune, uh, the great fortune to um, be able to travel and connect with professionals in the space industry across the gamut that ran the gamut of really um, entrepreneurs. I talked to uh, space lawyers, people who are working in government agencies, people who are just trying to get things started, you know, in their backyard. It was amazing. Um, and seeing the vibrancy of space outside of the US, that was a really great experience. So all of that kind of led to um, that experience, plus really luck. Um, I then found two positions in the Cambridge area. And since Wellesley was outside of Boston, I was kind of familiar with the community. Um, and there was these two positions, one at the MIT Media Lab with the Space Exploration Initiative and one at the Harvard Business School um, doing research on the business and economics of space. So yeah, I applied for those positions and here we are today. Wow. Wow. What a fantastic uh, way of tying in the international experience and bringing it to, you know, a space like Cambridge. A space exploration initiative is space will be hackable. Space will be playful. 
the vision is to build an interdisciplinary, a real life Starfleet Academy, which is very, very interesting. So tell us about your journey to become a member of this, this research yeah. group. What are you in an initiative as a whole working on right For now? For sure. So I should say that my background also includes quite a bit of STEM outreach um, and education. So as an undergraduate, I was involved with a lot of programs. And when I applied to the MIT Space Exploration Initiative, I initially applied to help with an after-school program that we were running in the Boston area to actually help students, high school students, build CubeSats. So it was, I mean, just a great plan from Ariel Ekba. The idea that we can have students in these areas being building and learning what it actually takes to deploy space hardware um, at that level. I mean, I didn't even know what satellites were <laughs> when I was a high school student, right? Like I had to, <laughs> to be able to hold something in your hand. And that's really the, the credit of this CubeSat revolution, right? All this stuff that's going on in the last, in the 2010s, in this, you know, idea of democratizing access to space. So the Space Exploration Initiative, what Ariel has set up at the MIT Media Lab is really the embodiment of what it actually means to explore this democratization of access to space. So this outreach component is a really tangible version of that, right? So I kind of globbed onto that and I was very intrigued by um, bringing high school students into this, into the space industry at that early of an age. But then on top of that, she has this whole portfolio of research across the board, um, across different departments at, M M M at MIT. So it's not just can high school students think about doing research in space, it's can um, you know researchers across the different departments at MIT um, who have never thought about doing something in space, go on a zero gravity flight, take up you know, bees, take up exercise equipment and start developing things and deploying them in microgravity environments. Um, and getting excited about building these this whole suite of artifacts for the space industry. So as Ariel always says, you know, if Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos are building the rockets that are going to get to space, we are building the experiences, the artifacts, um, and all of the surrounding, you know, the governance structures, thinking about the governance um, that's going to be in, enabled by those people. So, and really the idea is how do you bring as many people along on that journey? So how do we think about the artists, the scientists, the designers, um, you know, people who don't have access to millions of dollars in funding? How do you get them to start painting this tapestry of our future in, as an interplanetary society? Um, so that's really our vision at the, the Space Exploration Initiative. And yeah, again, I got involved um, just through uh, starting with this outreach program. But as soon as I started working with Ariel, our imaginations ran wild. And I have obviously many different um, interests that range from physics to, um, you know, space governance, international relations and philosophy, as well as the economics of space. Um, and now I've even been helping develop some hardware for um, an international space station inter astronaut interaction that we're thinking about deploying in within the next year or two. So Really, the space, yeah, the idea of the Space Exploration Initiative is trying to create this portfolio of experiments and research projects that help build up this future of our life in space. It really sounds like a real life tinkerbox, <laughs> which you're, you could just go in and you could just yeah. play with things. And eventually you come out of it with, with something beautiful and something extraordinary. Definitely. I think the whole idea of play 
And the idea that not only in the process of developing these projects are we kind of engaging in this play and right in this creative thinking process, but then also encouraging the to ourselves to think about space as an environment where we can live and work and play and eat and gather all of that. It really is, you know, there's so many different alternate realities we could imagine and having, <laughs> having the ability to think about an extreme environment like space. Um, it just, it takes your creativity to like its ultimate extremes. Um, whether that's in building really interesting technologies, whether that's thinking about really interesting new governance structures for resource sharing um, and co-investment and shared technologies, right? There's so many different things that the space environment, it demands us to think about. So that's really what's exciting about it. Yeah. Well, well talking about governance structures, you're currently leading the Lunar Open Architecture Project, a kind of a knowledge graph collecting, extracting structures available, historic and future cis-lunar mission data with the goal to facilitate collaboration in space industry among actors. How did this exciting project get its start? I want to know, like, who was, like, in the tinkerbox, like, a light bulb? Yeah. You know, how we want For to do sure. this. So this is a project that grew out of our collaboration with the Open Lunar Foundation, which is a nonprofit based out of San Francisco that is really trying to develop the first sustainable lunar settlement. That's their that's their ethos, that's their founding mission. And um, before I was onboarded to the, um, the Space Exploration Initiative, I believe Ariel, who's our director, and Jesse Kate Shingler, who's their governance lead, had been discussing a lot, you know, this idea that the number of actors that are going to be present on the lunar surface is rapidly increasing. So as before, we could think about, you know, the space race in the 60s, there were really just two actors who had the ability to get to the lunar surface and do anything. Um, we've really shifted into this new era that's been enabled by this rapid decrease in launch costs um, and things like the Google Lunar X Prize, right? There are people who are not only interested, but able to develop hardware for the lunar surface and are proposing a wide range of activities once they get there. So the idea of this lunar open architecture, it grew out of first, we just did an, a simple actor analysis. We just said, okay, let's sit down and see who are all the people who have proposed missions or are already on the lunar surface or in the orbit. Um, what are their goals, right? Why are they trying to go there? What are the stakeholders that are involved? What's kind of like the knowledge graph already of just the landscape that we're gonna see on the lunar surface? And as we started going into this, first of all, I think we were just surprised as many people are when you kind of first look at the planned missions for uh, lunar exploration at the amount of people who are interested in going back to the moon. So it's not just NASA, right? NASA has obviously announced this Artemis program and the, the mission to put the next um, man and the first woman, the first person of color on the surface of the moon. But it is now also countries like China, like India, like Russia, who have the ability and the capability now that they have developed over the last 50 years to be doing the same things and be, to be doing it rigorously. But on top of that, now the idea that there are commercial actors who can be sending their own hardware without the assistance um, necessarily of governments, right? I mean, with the assistance of government and commercial contracts, but the ability and the latitude to build their own hardware and to think about the services that they want to provide on the lunar surface. That's just a huge shift. Um, so the idea of the lunar open architecture is okay. If before we could think about space programs as being 
helmed by government space agencies and driven by political priorities, really. Now, in this new era of space exploration, what are the motivations? Why are people trying to go to the lunar surface? What are the hardware, what, what hardware is being developed? Um, what are the various programs that are being proposed? And if we want to make a sustainable return to the moon, how are those different competing and sometimes shared visions going to interact? So I am, and like many others, are very interested in seeing um, a vibrant community develop on the lunar surface. To make that a reality, you obviously not only have to think about mobilizing the resources to get us there, which requires incredible collaboration among these diverse set of stakeholders, but to have a shared and peaceful future on the moon, you would want to have some sort of coordination before you all go up there at the same time. So our idea with the lunar open architecture is not to offer solutions. And we always say that it's to communicate this vision. So first of all, to give the landscape, to show people what's going on. And that's in the form of a database of missions, of papers, of ongoing research, um, just trying to gather all this knowledge in one area, which is extremely hard in the space industry where there are so many different fields that are involved, so many different companies, actors, et cetera, et cetera where information exists in very strange and different ways. So one that, that, that's one aspect of it. But then on the other side is to start extrapolating and thinking through the use cases. So what are the things that people are gonna be doing on the lunar surface? And how do we think about investing in the right technologies at the right time to enable those futures, the futures that we see desirable? And then what technologies do we need to develop and think about so that we don't see futures that we find are undesirable? And those are two of the questions that we kind of think of. The problem essentially that LOA is trying to, no, not solve, but trying to highlight is, uh, is, is that just be in the know, have the right information before you get there. So you're able to make the right decisions at the right time with the right resources at your disposal. Yeah. Nobody's going to go this alone. So, you know, NASA is not going to be able to set up a lunar outpost in the next decade without the help of international partners and commercial partners, as we've seen from the International Space Station and the success of that program. But also, you know, the International Space Station for all of its amazing accomplishments is still limited because it's it has an expiry date. And if NASA has not enabled the commercial space sector to take over and develop a vibrant economy in low Earth orbit, then that is kind of almost a failure on their part in creating a platform that has to sp sp spun out an economy. And so when we look to the lunar service, first of all, it's going to be very dependent on the ability of a vibrant low earth economy. And you can think about that for, you know, staging requirements, for resupply mission, et cetera, et cetera. And the success, hopefully, of Axiom and their amazing funding round that they've done um, to develop a commercial space station in low earth orbit is a great signal for that. Um, vibrancy hopefully going forward. But we also want to look at that platform to extrapolate ahead to the lunar surface to think about the structures, the programs that you want to have in place, the flexibility and design requirements, the services, the contracting uh, mechanisms, the different partnerships that you're putting together. How do you think about all of that in developing and spurring the development of a, a lunar economy? And you know, one of the things that, that I keep thinking about is not just thinking about it, but how can you yeah. make it better? Because you can take a you can take a page out of the book, 
but it's it's what you write on that page it's going to make that page yeah. very unique to the book that exactly. you take it out of right are the next steps with the LOA to build some sort of an automated reasoning to connect uh, the interdisciplinary dots according to you know Kaufman's adjacent possible theory a GraphQL interface, which will be easy for people to connect, companies to connect, people to find exactly. each other. Yeah, the basic way you can think about LOA is as a node graph. And the idea would be exactly what you said is first, you know, there's this, there's kind of different problems that we have in creating this database. One is that just getting the sheer amount of information about the space industry into one place is difficult. But then on top of that, what we really need is to convert subjective signals and statements and roadmaps into an objective plan for sustained lunar settlement. So what are the steps, right? What what do we need to do first? What are high priority um, and low priority things? And how do we start creating some sort of itemized list? Um, once we do that, our idea is that people should come to LOA to discuss how they are going to tackle this problem together, right? So, okay, we need a vibe. We need multiple launch providers because there are different classes of, um, you know, cargo that we're cargo missions that we're going to be sending to the lunar surface. So there should be an opportunity for, you know, new entrepreneurs to look at this graph and see opportunities where they can start proposing um, interesting new technologies or business models. Um, but also for somebody like SpaceX or Blue Origin, they want to be able to look at this and see what are the services that customers are going to be needing, you know, 20 years down the line. What are the services that they're going to be providing? Do we need to be investing in commercial lunar propellant or do we need to be, uh, you know, creating up uh, communications infrastructure? What are the services that people are going to pay for and how can these the service providers have some 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 semblance of um you know an understanding of the reliability and credibility of the presence of those future customers and obviously governments can serve an important stand in in the interim when we think about you know the development of this cislunar economy so they not only have to have some <laughs> reliance on those governments to not shift priorities or budgets away from the, the moon, which is another part of this project, right, is to communicate the importance of the consistency of purpose, which is a, a term that I borrow from um, the NASA administrator, Charlie Bolden, who has always been advocating for this, right, is that we need to have consistency of purpose to give commercial providers somewhere to go and to have the ability to rely on those commercial um, contracts to actually provide services one day. But yeah, so like the idea is it's a convening platform, but it's also communicating this vision so as to give people the ability to identify gaps and synergies um, and places of investment. Obviously, this project is much bigger than, um, you know, three people at the MIT Media Lab developing a database. And that's our whole point is how do we communicate the problem in a way that's really compelling um, to start developing new fora to discuss these problems. And that's that's the other part of this project. So you mentioned my work with the Open Lunar Foundation. We have a series of research salons that we've been convening over the last year or two called the Moon Dialogues. And this really grew out of a need to have a forum to discuss near-term and also near to middle-term policy issues on the lunar surface. 
So we have the UN COPUS, right? The United Nations Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space, but that is limited to member states, right? So nation states and the, the interests of the nation states. Now we have this huge crop of uh, you know, stakeholders in civil society that are interested in engaging in the space um, industry. Where are they going to talk about conflict resolution? Where are they going to develop regulations where they don't exist? Where are they going to develop norms of behavior? So it's all of those things are going to be happening in the next couple of years, in the next decade. And we're just trying to get a little bit out ahead and just communicate some of the problems that might be arising. So here's a question in terms of how it's going to work. uh, How does it differ for communicating future needs and gaps? from a future market of space services, for space services per se. The the LOA itself, in one hand, how is it different from the, the future of the market that is already for being forecasted by consulting companies, let's say? I don't think that our it is not our authority or our interest to show people where they should invest their money. <laughs> That's not where we're trying to, um, our, our real goal, is to enable lunar settlement, sustainable lunar settlement, and to coalesce and convene an international community around developing a shared and peaceful lunar settlement. It's a good question because a large part of that is going to be driven by commercial interests and we are not blind to that. But the idea that anybody can project or predict the future of the space economy or space industry in a useful way, I am still skeptical of. Only because if you have spent time, like I have, reading hilarious and amazing projections from the 70s and the 80s and the 90s and the 2000s of the space industry, I think that the the predictions, like those can be a difficult game. Yeah, I mean, of course, at at the end of the day, you want to you want to have somebody tell you, you know, what's what's ahead in order for you to be able to think about, you know, what can be done with what's ahead. But that's only a small portion of the of the larger infrastructure, per se. What I'm trying to allude to is. LOA has established a, a, a groundwork of analogous and historic missions containing uh, regions and countries, spacefaring nations, who will be on, on the moon surface. And they're there for a single purpose or, you know, a, a few purposes. One of them is very simple, which is resource extraction. Taking that and applying that to what LOA is or what LOA should be doing how will it support or create some sort of synergy to enable these players to be able to converse with each other? Yeah. So that's funny because in, in your question, you make an assumption, which is interesting, about a stakeholder's interest, right? So the way that we conceive of stakeholder's interest is not necessarily, NASA is not going to the moon to do resource extraction, right? SpaceX is not going to the moon to doing research, to do resource extraction even iSpace is not doing going to the moon to do resource extraction. iSpace is going to the moon to enable their business model, which may or may not, yeah, to deliver a payload, right? NASA is going there because it's mandated by Congress that they ensure uh, sustainable human spaceflight operations because that's their mission. Um, that's a congressionally derived mission. And SpaceX is going to the surface because they are a commercial provider and maybe they want to help Elon Musk retire on Mars one day, right? So all of these different (laughs) interests 
sometimes they're competing, sometimes they're shared. Our job is how do you go from an interest, so an objective or a goal, and break it down into the capabilities and figures of merit that people want to see. So the idea of resource extraction, for example, resource extraction for scientific use versus resource extraction for, as you were saying, the futures market, the novelty of bringing back lunar rocks to earth to be sold on the terrestrial marketplace. Two very different things, two very different processes, two very different sets of technologies. Are there some sorts of overlap between the kinds of processing plants that you would need to create to enable those two things? Probably. And that's where we're interested, right? Is, okay, there's lots of different use cases that you could think of for resource utilization or um, for even landing on the moon, landing pads, right? And things like that. So how do we look at what everybody is saying and pull out the high level capability requirements that they're expecting from a system. And once you can, communi can, you can communicate that, then you can start getting everybody behind the same goal, right? So then you can say like, okay, to the scientific community, actually, if SpaceX creates a processing plant on the moon, it's great for you because you'll have the ability to do this and this and this, because these are the kinds of requirements that you have communicated. And SpaceX is interested in offering this as a service to you. And same thing to NASA. So th that's really what we're trying to do, which is look at the, the, the subjective and kind of confusing <laughs> signals that are being sent out in the space industry and driving out and drilling down to what are the capability requirements. And even I would say from my time at the National Science Foundation, the way we think about diplomacy, at least from a US perspective, it's like there's three levels of diplomacy, right? There's the very, very high level upper echelon, which is like the state to state relations. And those are maintained and managed by the president, by, um, you know, by high level diplomats. Then there's kind of this mid tier level, which is this lower level diplomats that go and do a lot of work together. They're all convening in these groups, um, multilateral fora and bilateral agreements and things like that. But then on the lowest level, there's these informal relationships between people, right? So that's a ground level di based diplomacy. And that's why the U.S. has programs like the Peace Corps. That's why the U.S. has programs, programs like the Astronaut Corps, because we want to show people that we can be friendly <laughs> and have people who exist and build relationships and friendships. And those kinds of informal interactions, they lead to much stronger inter uh, relationships between countries. So from the National Science Foundation's perspective, we want to encourage as many collaborative proposals between researchers at the you know lowest level at universities because those kinds of interactions just improve diplomacy on the whole. It is the role of the National Science Foundation's um, officers to develop collaborative proposals, for example, for doing things like the McMurdy, uh, McCurdy um, research, uh, in, uh, the platform facility in the Antarctic, right, for example. That was created due to bilateral and multilateral agreements by people who work in agencies like the National Science Foundation. Um, but it is also the role of, you know, uh, John F. Kennedy to create uh, the space program. And then for, you know, the other presidents 
to then for President Bill Clinton, for example, to invite Russia onto the International Space Station. So you can think about these different levels. I envision, we envision LOA as that baseline, that bottom level, right? So where are the Chinese researchers that are really interested in doing ISRU? And are they talking to Russians? Are they talking to Indians? Are they talking to Americans? How do we develop the strength um, in, in collaborations at that level? Because that's going to be the collaboration that we need if we're actually interested in enabling a future um, in space. That's what happens in the internet, right? That's what happens in other research areas. It's just, it just has not happened in the space industry as much. So is LOA an open access in place where researchers from the lands of China, <laughs> from the lands of Russia are able to contribute? That's, that's, our, that's why, why we have some latitude, right? Because we are um, at MIT, we're based as, out of a nonprofit, we have the ability to allow it to be open access for anybody to contribute, to come together and convene in these fora without any biases. So with the Open Lunar Foundation, for example, our two months ago, our Moon Dialogues, and we invited um, our collaborators from Russia and from China to be in conversation with Commander Chris Hadfield about um, international lunar bases. That kind, of inter that kind of interaction, that kind of dialogue could not happen in other fora. And that's where we think we have the ability to add something new um, and you know, we all speak online now. So having an online tool that's encouraging, and that's really our idea is not only to have um, this database, but also have to have fora online um, where people are engaging and talking to other researchers, where they're identifying different collaborators, where they're identifying different companies in different countries where they would like to co-submit proposal for. That's the, right, all of that, those people that I met while I was traveling, where I was just so surprised and I would meet you know, I would go to, for example, Portugal was a great example of this. I went to Portugal towards the end of my fellowship. And the first person that I met with, amazingly, was the direct, the minister of science, um, Manuel Haider, amazing guy, who stood up the Portuguese space agency that year. After meeting with him, he walked me down the hallway to Chiara Manfredi, who had started the Portuguese, was he put in charge of starting the Portuguese space agency. Then she sent me along to all of the people, the companies that Manuel had been supporting over the past couple of years that were engaged in the space industry. So I met you know, one guy who then had five connections to five other guys who were all developing their own um, space startups. It was brilliant, but your idea of the vibrancy of a sector is so dependent on these informal interactions and these nodes that people, people just know these things, right? So. When we talk to people in the space industry, they're like, yeah, of course I know the ISRU guy. I know the, um, you know, that guy has been working on this one drill for his whole life. Like, you should just go talk to him. Like, these are the things that we need to start putting somewhere. Um, in what That's like a people directory. That's a research directory, right? And capturing that information so that it's, once again, democratizing access to these things, right? It's that you don't have to have worked in the space industry for 30 odd years at a national space agency to have developed all these relationships with people, you can go to LOA and see, okay, who's the head of this mission and their contact details right there if they so wish to provide it, right? And you can go talk to them um, for a collaboration in some sort of research. That's, that's the goal is to increase those kinds of things. With whom our listeners 
should uh, should get in contact with in order to contribute on yeah, to to, uh, to Loa. For sure. Uh, is there a, is there an online forum email address? Everybody, just uh, find <laughs> Mac on LinkedIn. Just send her, you know, a nice uh, a nice message, and she'll get you. She'll get you into one hundred percent. Our doors are wide open. So if you go to loa.mit.edu, that's our website. Um, and if you go to submit a mission, you can submit anything. But then you can also sign up for project updates and get in contact with us um, to offer your help any way possible. We are looking for developers. We're looking for contributors. We're looking for moderators for thought partners. Um, once again, this is going to be a very big community effort. And our right now, we are kind of you know raising the sail and showing people the lighthouse of where we want to go. And we have really had the wonderful um, experience of developing some really strong relationships already with professional organizations in the space industry and um, such as the Lunar Surface Innovation Consortium and AIAA. Um, but we are really looking for anybody who wants to get involved with the project, yeah, and who believes that the future of space exploration and lunar exploration is going to require collaboration and coordination. We're open to anybody. Well, that's excellent. There you go. So uh, loa.mit.edu. Dot dot edu there you go uh, thank you for filling in <laughs> there <laughs> so so let's move from you know lunar knowledge yeah. databases to the rise of sharing economy in space uh, shared infrastructure in space uh, there's a a paper that you co-authored the blocksat paper together with ariel and mit with fidelity which yeah. was very interesting to me because they have not been widely very popular in in this in this space, but it's definitely very interesting. How did the Blocksat paper get? Yeah, for sure. So actually, yeah, it's funny that you mentioned Fidelity. Are we were collaborating? So Ariel, um, her master's thesis was in developing um, a blockchain methodology for med tech for medical devices. Um, so she had always kind of like been in the space and then moving into the space industry, I think had connected with somebody at Fidelity who was very interested in an early um, advocate for investing in blockchain. Um, and Fidelity Investments, they also have kind of this like research R&D arm where they have, you know, a full lab where they're exploring VR technologies and kind of like AR, VR platforms and things like that. So I think space was kind of the next natural step for them to think about, especially at that period of time where um, CubeSats were becoming a huge thing. Um, so when I was onboarded, I obviously had this background um, in working with CubeSats. And I will say that there was an interest in the industry across the board of actually making use of the standardization of the platform. So in CubeSat development, right, a lot of times you will find that even though we dream of kind of this plug and play infrastructure and architecture, we're not really there yet. There's a lot of need to develop bespoke um, interfaces. You know, there's a lot of first time developers still because it's kind of a relatively new area of development. So there's not a lot of engineers who have built three or four CubeSats already. Um, you know, most have only worked on one or two uh, in, in, over the course of their career. Um, so when I was working at Open Cosmos, our idea was to build a standardized platform where people could launch their own bespoke sensors. And the idea is that you kind of create this condominium style platform. And there are a lot of people who are interested in doing something like that, which is giving 
more people access to the hardware. So just as you have a personal computer and now there are all these developers that are creating applications, can you send people uh, some sort of frame or you know, the lowest level fidelity version of uh, at least a simulation of a CubeSat where they could build hardware on top of that and then send it back to you to be then launched into space? not having to deal with all the regulations, the you know extreme engineering requirements that come with launching space hardware, et cetera, et cetera. So the idea of BlockSat takes it one step further than that. Instead of here, here's a platform, build something, and then we'll launch it for you. It's, hey, we've already launched something, use it. And this concept, so the idea, and once again, like this is um, a project that we started about, it's almost been a year and a half now. And unfortunately it was put on, um, it was on put on hold because of our wonderful COVID-19 pandemic that we are all living through right now. Um, but the idea to use blockchain was that we wanted to have completely decentralized ownership of the platform and of the constellation. So can you think about launching space hardware into orbit and then having it be managed and used by a community? That's really the dream and the vision that we had with Blocksat. And it's funny, yeah, that you 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 know you say we're moving away from lunar architecture, but that's I think there are so many, so many applications of that concept that could exist in space. Because space is so notoriously difficult, right, to operate in, and and op and then on top of that, the kinds of the hardware that we do have in space, it's famously <laughs> underutilized. Because in the case of a satellite, for example, you might be orbiting the Earth every ninety minutes, but you only are operational for you know one or two passes over a region that you're interested in, and then you're doing a data dump. And then that's kind of like the operational lifetime of that satellite. It's only really being used at 20% capacity um, on average. So our idea is, okay, instead of you know having all these things that are orbiting all the time that are only being used at 20% of their capacity, how about you rent out the rest of the time on those kinds of platforms and allow users from around the world to send in requests, um, once again, using a distributed ledger that are then um, carried out by the platform autonomously. And the idea of using a ledger wasn't only to have this kind of like distributed system so that anybody from around the world could, our dream was to have a phone app, right? Where you could just say like, like click, 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 here's a picture. Yeah, <laughs> and any somebody from sitting in them, you know, and especially for a telephone, right? So somebody sitting without internet access could just like be downloading images um, or some sort of information that's relevant to them, whether that's sensor data or anything like that. There's amazing actually um, examples of this about farmers in Sub-Saharan Africa receiving reports, agricultural reports to their telephones from satellite constellations, which is brilliant. Um, so yeah, it's like really extrapolating on all these different concepts. But then on top of that, once again, going back to the ledger, our idea was not only that it's distributed, but then that the community could rank and uh, vote on the kinds of requests that were coming in. So it was, yeah, there was a, there's a lot that you could think about um, in terms of not only community management, but also cost sharing um, 
and then building capabilities on top of the constellation. So if you have one constellation that's being managed and owned by um, a community, what if I wanted to launch my own hardware and add it to the constellation, right? How do we create a system that is, is so flexible that I can actually improve the data products that are being enabled by that constellation because of a contributor from South Korea, for example, launched a satellite and added it to our constellation. So I think there's a lot to be said about um, the concept of Blocksat, but the the main point that we were kind of drilling home and a lot of people have been talking about is moving space hardware out of the realm of this bespoke traditional infrastructure that's really utilized only by a few stakeholders into the realm of, okay, how about, you know, just as everybody uses cell phone platforms or just as we have like our own little, you know, portals into the internet, how do we think about satellites in the same way? How do we engage and get more people to engage with those kinds of hardware? You as a, a avid hobbyist can build your CubeSat, launch it, and then connect it to Blockstack yep, Constellation. Exactly. There you have an infrastructure that now you're a part of, and then you get the same feed as the infrastructure is able to produce. Look, just like we have, you know, Elon Musk is building Starlink and Jeff Bezos is building Kuiper. What about the people? Like, what if the people build our own constellation? And it's... Constellation for yeah, the people, by the people. For sure. And we decide, <laughs> awesome. we decide the operational lifetime of it. We decide on, once again, using a ledger system to decide on what requests are being, are valid. Um, I think there's, and even you know, uh, thinking about getting more people to be able to benefit from it, incentivizing developers to launch their hardware into our into our platform because they can also profit from um, the use of their, their hardware. So how do we create incentive systems so that people are getting fairly compensated for the work that they're doing? Um, and there's more opportunity for low level developers to launch hardware and actually have customers right off the bat. Um, because they're adding to a constellation that already has all these capabilities and functionalities. It's just reducing the friction. And this is always our, our question, especially with CubeSats, between the data and the consumer of that product. And that's not just like Blocksat, our idea is really just one slice of that pie, right? It's just like, okay, how do you actually get hardware to be um, owned and managed by the consumer? But on top of that, how do you create really sophisticated data products, um, you know, that people can interpret and use. That friction is very high as well. Um, what are the sensors that you want to have on that kind of a platform? Well, that can well there, here's, a, here's a question for you, Mac. What are the challenges there? You know, because again, yeah, I mean, this, I is, this, is a, this, is a, this is a big part, right? Because if you're thinking about a, you know, similar approach to a crowdsourced a solution, that, that, that you'd be looking for. And this would be a crowdsourced product, which a lot of people, like you said earlier, they have shared needs and different needs. Uh, so how do, you, how do you tackle the issue of the, the shared problems and uh, the non-shared problems in, in a constellation such as this? But again, considering that all of this is, is in theory, uh, yeah. not, that, that this could take place, right? That's the, that's the beauty of it, that space is so vast that you could theorize anything yeah. and whether or not if it comes into into perspective there's always a learning experience yeah i'll tell you in the process of theorizing this platform we thought of a lot of problems that we would run into <laughs> so <laughs> there's no shortage of that research <clears throat> first of all 
in developing, going back to our mission, right? Democratizing access to space. How do you democratize access to a technology that's as sophisticated as a satellite? What does that even mean, right? And if you think about our analog that we really relied on, which is robotic telescope networks, which are used by astronomers all over the world, right? So an astronomer who's sitting in, um, you know, the University of Washington that wants to study um, really, really deep space galaxies and needs a radio telescope, right? They're not going to build a radio telescope in their backyard. They want somebody to build a radio quiet, uh, a telescope in a radio quiet zone. And then they just want to kind of plug in and say, hey, I need a observation at this place at this time for this long. Okay, so that problem has been solved. The reason that worked so well, and it continues to work so well, is because the astronomy community is extremely tight, right? And it's the, their needs are very well defined. The modes of getting funding for that community are very well defined. And um, they are matured. The technology of robotic telescopes is also matured to the level where there are enough networks now that are providing the types of data that these people want and they know what data that they want and they have the ability to process it, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, great. Blocksat, what does the community of the world want from a constellation, a satellite constellation, right? <clears throat> and um, so there's lots of, that, that, that's a problem in its own, right? And that, I think that's a problem that's reflective of the space industry more broadly in thinking about how space technologies actually benefit humans on Earth. I think there's a lot of wonderful work in satellite applications, right? And thinking about amazing, amazing case studies of how satellites have served critical roles in our society. Forget GPS and you know all of the, the technologies that we use every day. Um, but you know, NASA has amazing projects across the world in developing nations um, through their Servier projects um, about how people in rural environments can use satellite products to help them function. Okay, but that level of use requires so much ground infrastructure. Ground infrastructure, in the case of you know ground stations that are downloading that data, but also I think about ground infrastructure in getting people a platform to actually access data. Is that a computer? Is that a telephone? Is that, you know, then that, that person needs satellite access. That person needs access to um, cell phone towers. On top of that, the ground infrastructure required to educate people on how to use satellite products at the, you know, um, in the first place. Like that's a huge undertaking that, is not talked about enough, especially because, you know, so that's why when I look at things like Starlink and Kuiper, it's interesting to think about um, how people characterize those as democratizing access to space. And, you know, it's amazing, these new capabilities that are gonna exist. Well, who's gonna actually benefit from those, right? And without the development of ground infrastructure for Starlink, ter Star, uh, Starlink terminals, you know, in areas where we are being promised is going to be satellite internet, that's just not going to be a possibility or reality. So I think about the same problem with Blocksat is, okay, if we really want this to be a useful technology, then like, where do we start? Do we start with high school students? Do we start with university students? Do we start? And then how do we slowly break down the barriers and the walls of access to this technology. And 
I mean, that's the thing with space, right? Is that if you want more people, we need more people. We need more people, not only to be thinking about this problem, right? That's the the problem of a knowledge economy. And that's, there's a lot of interesting work in science, uh, science and technology theory about just the, the knowledge base, right? That contributes to a problem and having enough talent. So that's a big problem. And you, if you talk, think, talk to anybody who's working in workforce development for the space industry, and they'll tell you that's a problem. But there's also a problem in communicating a vision and bringing people online in a tangible way into the efforts that we're making as a space industry. So <clears throat> whether that's in developing satellite technology, then we have to do so much work to show people that there's satellites that are orbiting every day that help them all the time. How many conferences do you go to, right? How many, even in the space industry, when we talk to each other, we have to constantly drive this point home over and over and over again. But if you ask an average person on the street, like, what does a satellite do for you? I don't, I don't know if they would have an answer, right? I don't know if they would even recognize the, the depth at which we rely on satellites. So I think the thing with Blockset is that the problem is reducing the friction, but then also it's a solution to larger problems. Because if we were able to get more people literally linking into a satellite from their telephone and seeing things for themselves and seeing useful things for themselves, that would be, I think, the best advocation for the benefits of satellite technology to humans on Earth possible. Um, you know, and if Starlink achieves its goals, its very lofty goals, I think that's also really great um, movement in that direction. But then when we think about moving to this lunar surface and developing payloads, how do we bring more people into that vision too, right? Can we get people to remote it, ro robotically operate rovers on the lunar surface and put in a museum exhibit exhibition where people can literally navigate in VR for themselves live, right? A feed from the, okay, like one second or two second delay, but a feed from the lunar surface. <laughs> like that would be, I think, a huge. Isn't astrobotic transporting a, a payload? They're transporting a capsule. They're transporting some sort of art. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Up on the first mission. I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting to say the least, but here's the thing. What I keep thinking about is that we got the Starlink and Kuiper and OneWeb after... 25 years of almost development in in the geosat it took us 25 years to realize that we could have the same access at a faster pace and with larger frequency and bandwidth and everything else 25 years later so here's so then then big question mark is it going to take us another <laughs> 25 years to to find that on the moon or on mars that's so funny timelines in the space industry also fascinate me endlessly. You know, I think the problem is that the space industry started, we went from zero to 10 years going to putting a man on the moon. And then that, that totally, totally destroyed any sense of reality that we had about how things operate <laughs> and what kinds of life cycle um, and time that we should be, that's actually realistic. So I will say that we have a terrible head start because of that. So people expect way too much um, from space hardware and are also our um, appetite for risk has dramatically reduced over that time. Yeah, since the 60s. So when you talk about when is this going to happen? Um, yeah, I think the the first 
it's really great that uh, launch costs are coming down so dramatically and that um, CubeSats are much cheaper because we can just launch things and if they fail, it's fine, right? It's not a big deal. They'll deal written two or three years. It's not like we're losing millions of dollars. We're losing hundreds of thousands of dollars. So already the cost, like the order of magnitude um, in that is going to be helpful in terms of helping us develop and refine those kinds of systems more quickly and approaching I mean, nobody's going to be approaching levels of software development, but <laughs> one day, you know, you can dream that we are just, that our satellites are totally software driven and we are uploading, um, you know, upgrades all the time. That would be amazing. But yeah. Well, I mean, it's happening now yeah. as we speak, right? Sure. Because of the, the key operators like Intelsat and Utilsat and Marsat are progressing more and more towards software-defined satellite, a, a BlockSat constellation usable in orbit. When do you think that might be possible, a roadmap? Like we've already seen, for example, Sarah Spangello um, from Swarm Technologies established a fundamental base of IoT technology. And they're, they've got a Swarm now, which could be repurposed if needed to and converted into a, a constellation that could work in a, you know, in, in a, in a community-based level depending on how it operates yeah. but again so let's think about when can you get blocks out what do you need do you need money do you need people do you need <laughs> that's great no i mean i think it's a great question i think and once again when i went back to all of those problems right if i think about blocks in its truest form in that it is a satellite that is fully usable and operatable by anybody in the world at any point in time. I think in terms of hardware, um, I don't think we're that far off. I think it's money, right? I think it is literally just somebody putting in the time and the effort to build out that constellation to set up the first satellites. Um, but on top of that, there is a lot of development that needs to happen in the development of flexible architectures. So our research, we were exploring the development of kind of like these federated systems essentially, right, and distributed systems. And so to create the kind of software and hardware and how they interact with ground station and work and the end user terminal, how all of that exists in a system where you're receiving requests at a rate that's almost immediate, right? So you don't have too much gap between a request and the uplink to the satellite constellation, which requires a lot of satellites. Um, and then having the ability for the constellation to autonomously prioritize and intercommunicate with other satellites in the constellation to fulfill the request and then downlink it to the user that end loop there are numerous parts of that equation that I, a lot of people are working on and that are right so like inter-satellite communication is a huge thing right uh download linking and upload linking data creating um a, a ledger a blockchain ledger in space that requires um, insane amounts of compute power and whatever, right? So like, there's just all these different problems that you can imagine that just compound and compound. So if somebody were to seriously sit down 
and build this um, in a way that was fully functional. Like our idea was to do a tech demo, right? So like we, we yeah, like that's the capacity and capability that we really have, <laughs> which would be really low fidelity. So like go from that to um, a satellite constellation. I mean, you can look at things like Planet or other CubeSat constellations, right? How long did it take them to have a fully functional constellation? Um, and, you know, it's, that's on the order of five or 10 years, which is pretty fast, if you ask me. Um, I don't know. I think that that's a, I mean, once again, I don't like future forecasting as a, <laughs> as a principle. That's perfectly okay, because because that's why I am here. I'm here to forecast. <laughs> so, so, so here's a question. You know, I'm talking, thinking about novel technologies that, that this potential architecture could be maximized to on the lunar surface or yeah. on the loon, in, in the lunar surface or, uh, you know, atmosphere per se, cis-lunar space, let's say. A similar architecture for, for cis-lunar, yeah. what, are, what are some applications that, could, that it could potentially be maximized for? No, there's a really, really interesting proposal for an asteroid defense monitoring system using a federated system of CubeSats throughout the um, solar system, throughout our solar system. So I think that's, that's one that I've seen that's fascinating to me, um, where you would have basically like little scouts that could communicate with each other and, um, you know, monitor the vicinity, like how an asteroid is, is basically careening through our solar system, hopefully, you know, and once we have more hardware in space, that's going to be become very important, right? Once it's not just about, is it going to hit earth, but is it going to hit our micrometeoroids going to be hitting, um, you know, any assets in low earth orbit or in cislunar space, that's going to be become a really important monitoring system. Something that I imagine could be a shared architecture among many different countries who have their own, um, you know, infrastructure in space, just like we have active uh, debris mitigation kinds of monitoring systems um, in low earth orbit. That's a really cool application that I have heard about. I mean, I also think if we could, there's a lot of development in thinking about doing astronomy from space. So not just like a Hubble Space Telescope, but how about, you know, you have, just like you have, you know, multiple fields, uh, like of antenna for a radio telescope, right? How could you have all these distributed networks that create some sort of, um, telescope in space. Um, I think that's a really cool application as well. Um, yeah, I mean, other things, I know people have proposed little fuel tanks, like CubeSat fuel tanks that could uh, fly around. That would be all, I mean, I think that would be really cool. And being able to basically have these CubeSats dock with spacecraft and then you fuel it up for some sort of, you know, price. Maybe I'm, you know, got my own spacecraft and I have some extra fuel that I need to dump. Maybe because I'm going back to the, the Earth's surface and I don't, you know, need it. Or maybe I want to like dump some so I don't have to use that. You know, there's lots of reasons um, that you could be dumping propellant or waste or something like that. Or I don't know, that, that would be cool. Like little docking um, mechanisms that just like fly around. I mean, now we're talking about. <laughs> now we're talking about uh, <laughs> uh, the truest form of, of of a future interplanetary <laughs> yeah. species becoming interplanetary species. I tend to go very few, far in the future. So. And that's and that's the beauty of it. So so you know you're working at MIT. 
And there are a lot of futuristic plans that I'm sure that are consistently being sort of brainstormed per se. So what's next from this place exploration initiative at the MIT? Well, we can't give all our secrets away. <laughs> That's perfectly okay. <laughs> um, just just actually, some. What's coming or up just one. for us? For that's yeah, no, no. What's coming up that's really exciting for us is that NASA has created all these commercial opportunities for the International Space Station. So that is a huge new area. So our research, the way that it functions, basically, we are able to pay for um, and charter, for example, zero gravity flights where we do microgravity research. We've also have a flight campaign um, through Blue Origin for suborbital research. We've now just recently started launching hardware this last year. Um, to do payloads on the ISS. Okay, what's next is now the ISS is offering us the ability to do astronaut interactions. So for people like us who work on, you know, thinking about the future of life and work and play in space, to be able to have hardware sit in the hands of an astronaut, to have them interact with it, to see what are the design considerations that we need to make for microgravity environment and have the ability to test that for longer than our parabolas on the geography <laughs> flight, right? <laughs> to have somebody live and, you know, use a cup in space for a month and see all the ways that they enjoy or don't enjoy using it. Um, that's really where, where we're excited that things are going and where we see things like the International Space Station, these new opportunities, but also the development of the Axiom Space Station. Like, that's what we're really thrilled and excited about. Um, other than that, I mean, we're going to the moon, man. It's exciting. We, we are really um, hey. gearing up yeah, for that. Knock on wood. Knock on wood. Yeah. And all fingers crossed as much as you possibly can. All the uh, all the juju with us to, to get to the moon or, or at least Artemis to get to the moon. So here's yeah. here's the last question. You know, what what's next? Um, case study from HBS we should be expecting uh, from HBR that you're working on. Um we talked with we talked with Matthew uh, in regards to a recent publication on space resources mm -hmm. in space manufacturing that that you guys had just just launched. What's happening? What's happening on that side with you? Yeah. So the next case that cases that will be published hopefully Ooh. very soon. Yeah, we're very excited. We've been working on a case study of the International Space Station program. So our first interest in this case came from. There's a wonderful book that is called The Space Station Decision, and it basically goes through what happened to NASA after Apollo, right? Apollo was supposed to be a one-off program. It was supposed to end. Congress was very clear that there would be no funding for this space organization once we landed men on the moon and came back. But NASA, with 400,000 employees <laughs> at the end of the Apollo program and leftover Saturn V rockets, was like, there's no way we're going to do that. You know, they had canceled some of the final Apollo missions, so they still had leftover rockets to be used. So Werner von Braun and um, George Muller, who was one of the um, heads of the uh, one of the NASA centers, they came up with this plan to build a space station. And really, at the end of the day, a space station had always been the dream. It was always the next logical step for NASA. And that's really the, the term that we kind of focus on, right? So what's the next logical step for a space agency is to keep humans in orbit as long as possible, because that's our dream. And for NASA, having a space station is so important. So we go through this political history of basically 
Werner von Braun and George Muller converting a Saturn V rocket um, into a wet lab, which became later Skylab, which was the first yeah, uh, space station that the US launched and orbited. And then once that deorbited, right, what did NASA do? They built the space shuttle and the space shuttle existed for what reason, for what purpose? To eventually, hopefully, ferry and build uh, an, a space station in the low Earth orbit. So we go through this fascinating political history of the development of the space station program, the inability of NASA to secure funding for years into the future. So how do how does a, an agency, a space agency, exist within a flat year budget where they are getting the same funding every year for pro programs like building a space station in orbit, right? Where they had previously had blank checks written to them for the Apollo program. So basically we go, we see kind of the transformation of this, this organization from doing these big, bold things to working incrementally. So developing first a space shuttle program that was really robust, then developing slowly piece by piece an international space station and our question is, okay, what's the next step? So the first part of the case examines really its political history and the idea of NASA kind of facing this identity crisis and coming out with a space station, you know, and it's really this story of a, a station uh, designed by committee <laughs> problem, right? Where it, it really, what purposes did it serve? You know, what purposes, who was really interested in building this thing in the first place? And now the second case is about the gateway. and why is NASA again proposing another space station? And in a lot of ways, you know, we were kind of skeptical. There's a lot of people who have a lot to say about the, the proposed lunar gateway, right? They're saying, why would you, it's a, um, it's a pit stop. It's, uh, you know, it's useless. Like you just go straight to the lunar surface, get off and go to Mars. Why would you propose this? The architecture makes no sense from an operational standpoint. But we argue from a political standpoint, actually for NASA, it makes a lot of sense for them if they are deorbiting the only asset that they have in space to have something else that is going to be consistently orbiting around the moon, right? So for NASA, it's a transition out of low Earth orbit to the commercial sector and then moving on to the to lunar orbit, but still having some sort of a staging platform. So the platform isn't just about getting to the moon efficiently and back, it's about sustaining a purpose for NASA, right? So getting humans and astronauts to that station is now their next goal. Giving contracts to SpaceX as they announced to resupply that station, right? That keeps a economy going in cisgender space. Like these are all of the considerations that we can think about NASA taking into account. And um, yeah, so these case studies obviously coming from a business school, our interest is not only in how NASA has to manage and maintain these interests uh, with this flat one-year budget, but also how it's kind of in the midst of all of this, right? The political turmoil of the uncertainty about their budgets, how they've really successfully, I mean, in the face of everything, uh, built these platforms that have created a really vibrant space economy. So, you know, the International Space Station is arguably one of the only reasons that SpaceX exists, right? Is that they needed somewhere to go and they got the contracts to go there. So if we want SpaceX to go to the moon and we want other companies to go to the moon, um, it actually is an interesting and compelling point to have NASA build something that's an infrastructure and architecture that would be orbiting the moon. So that's the next uh, case study we've been kind of, we had a, the wonderful opportunity to talk to um, Charlie Bolden um, about his experience in 
extending the lifetime of the International Space Station and kind of all of the decision that went into that after the termination of the Constellation program and managing the, and the helm of NASA in that really turbulent environment after, you know, they were getting so much flack for canceling Constellation. So it was, it's just, yeah, it'll be uh, hopefully a really interesting read um, definitely looking, in the future. Definitely looking forward to it. And here's, uh, here's our wrap up question that we ask everybody, why space and why space now? <laughs> That's great. You know, it's funny. I know. Uh, I think my answer is much more poetic. So I think, you know, we're all put on the planet to do something. And I think when I was in college, I was extremely bent on, okay, how do we make Earth so much better? And I still believe that. I think, how do we reduce suffering on the planet? How do we make sure that as many people are lifted out of poverty, that we educate as many people as possible? And I'm still so committed to that. But on the other hand, what makes life worth living is the fact that we have a humanity and human race that is engaged in endeavors like space exploration. Just as we need art and music and culture. And, you know, when I was traveling around the world and lived in the most rural environments and seeing the beautiful things that people had created um, to that show that like humanity has meaning and that life has meaning. I think space exploration is the same thing. You know, we are engaged in something that gives us hope that make, gives us something to dream about and move towards. And I think space is just, it's that, right? It, it captivates our imaginations. And why space now is because it's a reality, right? It's not just a dream anymore. We are at the precipice of something that means that there's gonna be a lot more people who have the ability to in, experience space in the ways that people have said that it's so transformational. So the prospect that, you know, one of us could be orbiting the, the earth and seeing earth rise from moon, like that alone, I think is just motivation enough um, to be helping this sector as much as possible get to that point. So yeah, that's that's why space. Well, that is amazing, Mihak. Thank you so much for taking the time and and, and sharing your insights and, and doing so much. Uh, we're really looking forward to seeing how all of this progresses with you. And yeah, the cool. MIT this, space thanks, exploration. Thanks for inviting me. This is no great. Um, and I'm excited to hear the rest of your um, podcast episodes. This is Absolutely. really great work. Absolutely. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. And and we'll love to have you back in the future after after LOA has sort of, <laughs> yeah, has, for sure. has, has sort of come out of its, uh, its infancy. Well, there you have it. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Space Forward. Stay tuned for more deep dives, explorations, and journeys we have in store for you. Don't forget to follow us on Spotify, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, or YouTube. Hear you next time. <laughs>